Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Dr. Michelle Wong. Michelle is a PhD chemist, science educator, and the woman behind Lab Muffin Beauty Science, where she writes accessible content explaining the science of beauty and skincare. Join us as we talk about beauty science, pole dancing, and Asian representation in media. Hello, Michelle. Thank you for joining me today on Steam Powered. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me about what you do and what you love about chemistry. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so uh, what led you to study chemistry to begin with? To be honest, I think it's like not, it's never really like a direct path. So um, back when I was in high school, my high school had a chemistry Olympiad program. So I started doing that because my best friend at the time was doing that so it was like every lunchtime we'd sit there and listen to I think it's the equivalent of first year chemistry um so I think this was back in like year nine I think um yeah and at the time I also had a really really good science teacher and so because of that um eventually when I got to year 11 um I got into the national chemistry olympiad so I went to the summer camp and if you go to that summer camp, you can skip first year chemistry at uni because it's the same content. So um, I decided to do law at uni because it was mostly because I was a bit rebellious, to be honest. My parents <laughs> wanted me to do medicine, um, as a lot of Asian parents do. And <laughs> my friends were doing law. My friends were more into English and art. So I, I decided I wanted to do law as well. And um they were all going to Sydney Uni, and Sydney Uni is beautiful. Um, it has a campus that looks a bit like Harry Potter, and I, it's close to Red Station, and it's sort of seen as like the cool uni. So I wanted to do that, so I enrolled in a combined science and law degree. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I started studying chemistry at uni. Um, I really loved studying law as well, but then I started working at a law firm, and I really, really hated it. So at that point... Um, at the end of the third year uni, you have a choice to do honours. Um, if you're doing a combined science law degree, you can stop law for a year and then do a year of honours. So I thought, well, it seems like a bit of a no-brainer. Like one year, you get an honours, the honours bit after your degree. Um, and if you want to do a PhD, you don't have to do a master's. So it seemed like a no-brainer to do that honours year. And after I did that, I really enjoyed my project. So I wanted to keep going. Oh, wow. So uh, how did you find the project that made you so interested to keep going with chemistry? I think it was just one of those projects where you go through the book, um, the little booklet of all the projects you could do. Um, I wanted to do some sort of methodology project. Yeah, so that's how I got into it. So you actually went straight from the honours to the PhD or did you actually complete the law as well afterwards? No, I just went straight through to the PhD. Wow. Yeah, I decided I I just wanted to keep going with that project because I was really close to getting to the end of <laughs> uh, end of it. So yeah, my project was on um, a method for making cyclopeptides. Um, so peptides are really hard to cyclize. So we stuck on a little pseudoproline turn inducer, and then after it cyclizes, you can remove the pseudoproline, and so you have a, a cyclopeptide, and they have lots of really cool applications. So I was really close to finishing it at the end of honours, and then I could go on to the application part. Um, in reality, like most PhD projects and 
research projects, it didn't quite go to plan. So it took me a while <laughs> to polish off that that pathway before I could take it onto the biological studies and the supramolecular studies. Um, yeah, it felt like I was really on the edge of it though at the end of honors, which is like <laughs> a issue. Well, that that would have been an amazing feeling. I can you know I can imagine why that would have just made you just go. Well, I, I just need to be able to keep going yeah. on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. When you actually decided to pursue chemistry, where did you see yourself afterwards having completed that? Honestly, my main, the the main career path that I thought I would end up going to was academia. I think as a lot of people, when you're going into a PhD, <laughs> you're like, I love research. Research is great. Um, I love I love giving lectures. I love um, being in this sort of academic environment. And then as you go through your PhD, you start to realise what communities are like. Um, and yeah, you end up realizing maybe academia isn't quite the path for you. I mean, obviously a lot of people at the end of the PhD still think, um, still want to stay in academia. Um, but yeah, during that process, I realized, um, some of the things in academia weren't the right fit for me. Um, yeah. So I think near the end of my PhD, I was looking at a bunch of options. Um, I was thinking maybe patient law. Okay. Yeah, so you would have been considering like incorporating your legal background as well with it. I don't think I really had enough of a legal background to jump straight into patent law, but I did did have like I I knew I enjoyed doing law, so I think I had that um, that motivating me. Um, but yeah, in general, I think um, from what I've heard, they pay for they usually pay for your extra legal training if you get employed as a patent attorney. Oh, that's pretty cool. And it was also when you uh, were doing your PhD that you started blogging about, you know, all the things that you were learning while you were doing your PhD project. So what prompted the blog? Um, so it was a mix of factors. So firstly, I was really interested in beauty products. Um, so I would start looking up beauty products and seeing um, whether or not they did what they were said they were doing. And there were always these little scientific claims. Um, and I never quite understood them. And so I would get curious and I would dig more. So it would be things like, um, this can do something on your skin. And I was like, hmm, like medicinal chemistry, pharmacology sort of background. So I was like, hmm, I wonder what receptors it's working on. I wonder um, what the mechanism is. Is it like a, is it even receptor mediated? Um, let's have a look. And so I would dig really deep into the literature um, and try to find out whether or not it was true. Um, there were also, of course, lots of fear mongering claims, like this is really toxic to you. Um, and I would be like, but we have a really well-regulated system. Why would the government be allowing something toxic in your products? Um, and if they are, we should be lobbying against it. So again, I would go down this rabbit hole of going through <laughs> articles. Um, and I would think at the end of it, I would work out the answer usually. And I would be like, hang on, other people must also be wondering the same things. Um, and they don't have access to these peer-reviewed articles. They don't have the um, they don't have the knowledge to read these articles and work out what's really going on. Um, I should share this. So that was part of it. Another part of it is I just have a really bad memory, so I was really <laughs> writing it down so I would remember later. Um, and another part of it was a bit of my mind was like I want to go into science communication, maybe um, one of my many options at this point. Um, and I heard that. Um, from a lot of people, they were saying you need to build a portfolio and one of these ways is to start writing, um, like you can start writing a blog and then you can show that 
um, as part of your resume to, if you apply for a science communication job so you can prove that you have a passion for that area already. Um, and it's good practice, I guess. So I was like, well, um, yeah, maybe I should start writing a blog. So it wasn't even related to your topic. It was just because of your interest in beauty products. <clears throat> Not directly related, but of course, like my project was a lot of medicinal chemistry. So I had that sort of background in um in pharmacology and how things interact with your body. Um, my background was also, um, so one of the other applications of cyclic peptides, which my supervisor was really into, <clears throat> are the supramolecular applications. So it was a lot of receptor binding stuff. And so uh, my research group was always talking about um, things like supramolecular applications, um, a lot of cool um, things like, I can't remember anymore, <laughs> the technical <laughs> Um, like um, lamella sheets and that sort of um, those sorts of systems and so yeah so a lot of that um, that vocabulary was already ticking away as well. Okay cool so what is supermolecular? Supermolecular it's a really really wide field basically it's just um, molecules interacting without reacting so it's just like um, intermolecular forces um, how mixtures stay together that sort of it borders on physical chemistry um, we didn't go really deep into the physical chemistry part, but we used some of the techniques like um, like different NMR techniques to try to work out what how the things were interacting. So my supervisor mostly was looking at, um, at anion receptor binding. So we would use the cyclopeptide as a scaffold. We'd put two arms on it, and then we'd have these ion these ions. I think we were mostly – it's been a while because I graduated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so they would put zinc into those, and those zincs would be able to bind. Um, at the time, we were targeting pyrophosphate. Um, and so by varying the size of the arms and varying the base and the length of the arms and stuff like that, um, we could bind it more strongly. And so we were trying to find a way of binding it as strongly as possible. Um, my, the thing that my supervisor kept on trying to hook me in with was uh, making an enzyme mimic. Um, so we've so theoretically, we could use the um, receptor to bind, um, like two arms of the receptor to bind um, some sort of substrate, and then we would use the third arm to catalyze a chemical reaction. And so you could make a little, um, yeah, a very, very skeletal um, enzyme mimic, which we were getting towards that. Um, but yeah, I ran out of time at the end. Uh, what would that have led to? if you were able to do that? Um, so I think the enzyme mimic was largely um, just a proof of concept type of thing. Um, it's been a while since I've read it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. We're just sitting right over there very temptingly. Um, <laughs> but I think it has applications in, I think a lot of, a lot of super molecular chemistry is just proof of concept making really cool things. Um, so I think it was mostly that, um, but I think the justification was for um, for biological assays. Lots of, yeah, definitely lots of applications there for what you can do with it. Okay, sorry about that digression. It's just, yeah. I was just curious about what that all was. Um, yeah, so with all the technologies and all the advancements that you hear all these beauty companies make, how do you keep up with the science behind all of it for all your research for your videos and your posts? So I get it from a, a big variety of sources. So um, obviously the best information comes from peer-reviewed literature. 
Um, so a lot of the time when I'm researching one topic, then the literature, like a review, might mention a different topic, and I'll um, I'll keep that in mind, and then I might look deeper into that. Um, there's also a lot of um, there's a few trade publications, um, and they're usually a little bit dodgier. Um, a lot of it is technical marketing, so they'll um, make claims that aren't supported by the literature. They'll make completely wild claims. So even though it's really technical, um, you have to really take it with a lot of skepticism. <laughs> um, so there's usually interesting new advances there. And um, I also work with a lot of beauty companies, so um, on their sort of influencer marketing side. So they'll send me um, product releases, new products, um, yeah, press releases about new products and trends and stuff like that as well. That's brilliant. So there's so much research that goes into all of that all the time. So is there, do you find that there's still a lot of clarification or debunking that you kind of need to do to simplify some of the marketing terms? Like these days, given um, how prevalent beauty science is now? Um, definitely. There is a lot of crap out there um, and it's pushed on every level so there's always new trends so at the moment for example there's a trend where um a lot of companies are trying to sell blue light protective products because everyone's working from home therefore everyone's increasing their screen time um so the peer review literature is pretty clear um the only evidence there is is for really large amounts of blue light um in other words sun exposure um so sunscreens don't protect from visible light and that visible light is really, really intense, thousands and thousands of times more intense than anything you get from a computer screen. But both beauty brands and the technical marketing people have been pushing the blue light claim. Um, so one of the problems with the technical marketing is that a lot of it is consumer led. So if consumers are worried about something, they'll make a product to, um, to address that concern, even if all of the science is complete BS. I've been to these, <laughs> um, I've been to these ingredient conferences um, and the speaker will start with, well, we know that this isn't a real concern, but consumers care about it. So here we've made <laughs> some ingredients that will address this concern. And it's, it's really quite bizarre because you have all these scientists who know exactly what's going on. Um, yet they're still being forced to make these products to meet a consumer need. Um, I love the so cynicism behind that kind of opening. <laughs> yeah, it's really quite, it's really quite funny um, and a bit sad. So I guess part of what keeps me going is, um, yeah, trying to stop, trying to help these scientists with their cognitive dissonance. <laughs> <laughs> they, can make, they can stop being forced to make products that they don't believe in. Yeah. Definitely. That would be such a massive problem, especially in the consumer market. <laughs> so you've mentioned the blue light stuff. What's the craziest thing that you've encountered in terms of this kind of consumer led development? I think blue light is definitely one of them. Um, I think clean beauty is another really big one at the moment. Um, so clean beauty is if basically if your product has certain ingredients, then it's unclean, dirty, bad for you. Um, and that just makes zero sense if you've ever sat in on any sort of like initial beginner pharmacology lesson where the first thing you learn is the, the response, like you need a certain dose to have a response. If you have like the curve looks, the curve generally looks like this. Um, this is why homeopathy is BS because if you have too low concentration, nothing can happen. But then we have, um, mostly beauty companies 
pushing these claims that like you can you should be checking all your ingredients lists. Um, if our competitor includes this ingredient, you should not be using this product because it will be harmful in the long term. Um, so yeah, I think that's one of the most frustrating ones because um, if you understand the basic science, it is so obvious that it's complete BS. Um, but it's quite easy to sell because it's a very clear idea. Um, from a consumer point of view, it's really confusing how to how to navigate this whole space. And so having this very strong rule, um, I have a list, I can check it, and then I can tell if something good or bad and whether or not to buy it. It's a really tempting idea. At some point, obviously, everyone's had a look at this kind of documentation. So there was this person who was talking about uh, the harmful effects of cosmetics and she said that she normally doesn't wear makeup but then she needed to she was in the media so she had to do media work had to do makeup products and stuff like that and she said that out of interest she started doing I can't remember what test it was but it was effectively like a tox screen to detect what changes there were in her chemical makeup as a result of having to start using cosmetic products again but when you read the article at first glance it's wow, cosmetics is going to kill me. And she said that she was starting to feel effects of certain other things. And you have to wonder, like, how much of it is psychosomatic, how much of it is going to be actual chemical reactions or whether it's her physiology that's causing that result. When people get concerned about their body taking on these trace elements, like how, how do you know not to be concerned by how much it gets in? So I think part of it is... Um... Like as scientists, we can sort of see, we can sort of pick a hot part holes in the story. We can see where the logic starts to fail. Like you said, um, it could be some sort of placebo, nocebo effect. Um, it could be, we don't know what the chemicals are. We don't know if the chemicals changing, whatever toxins they are. Um, we don't know if they're changing that can cause any sort of physiological effect if they're physiologically relevant. <clears throat> so I think from my um from my perspective, if I were to debunk this for a consumer, um, I would start raising some of these issues um, and trying to translate it to um, to words that they can understand. So I think a lot of this sort of science communication work, um, you have to understand, you have to be able to get inside the head of the consumer. Like if there's a lot of empathy involved, um, you have to sort of, yeah, see what the standard um person understands about science already so um my other my job which I kind of skipped over at the start <laughs> um to you know not starve before the blog started <laughs> becoming successful um so I was really interested in teaching back when I was at uni like that was one of the things that really gave me a lot of joy during my PhD I think I don't know I think I'm one of those people who likes to see myself having an impact and one of the really frustrating things about research is that you will contribute to the body of research but you don't know how much you contribute till years later when your preliminary like there's so much basic science research um, that never makes it into any sort of product that will affect anyone and some of it does but all of it like you don't know for 20 30 years and so I found that really frustrating um and I really admire people who have the patience to keep on doing it um, without seeking a result. I don't know. I like to impact people. And so teaching was one of the ways where you see immediate feedback. You see students understanding things. You see them. You help them. Um, a lot of the time when you're teaching first year uni especially, um, they're not used to having to learn things on their own. And so they, real, they get real, like, 
they have panic attacks before their exams. Um, a lot of the time, professors aren't hired for their teaching ability, so they've had really bad lecture experiences where they go in and they understand the first slide and nothing else. Um, they're on the verge of tears, and you can really help them. Um, and so, I really enjoyed being able to see like actually helping like I felt like I was actually helping so after my PhD I um, joined a tutoring company in Sydney um, and they hire almost exclusively PhD students and people with education degrees um, yeah and so I'd never really realized I was this sort of teaching environment where um, you could get paid reasonably well while teaching and while um, teaching like so-called real science so not like not a really dumbed down version it is sort of dumped down, but it's still an accurate version of the science. Um, yeah, so that my so I've been there for um, almost ten years now, um, and so with that, I guess I've been teaching so many high school students that I sort of have an insight into the scientific literacy level of the general population. I think if you sort of understand where the general public is with their scientific literacy, it really helps when you're trying to explain a concept. So you can um, you can relate it to things that they already know, um, things that they know in real life. And so one of the examples I like to use for Dose Makes the Poison is if you have a headache and you lick a Panadol tablet, nothing is going to happen. Um, you need to take a whole tablet. If you don't, if sometimes a whole tablet doesn't do it, you have to take two. Um, so same idea with these toxins. Um, sometimes having a tiny bit of toxin in your body is the equivalent of licking a Panadol tablet or just smelling it. Um, it's You'll have a little bit in your body because atoms are really small, but you won't have enough to have any sort of real effect. Yeah, it applies to so many different things, right? Food, cosmetics, like all of these things, like in small doses, they don't really do anything. So how do you juggle, like, are you still teaching at the moment? So last September, so it's almost been a year now, um, so I was head of chemistry at this um, at this tutoring college, looking after like twenty ish teachers, um, yeah, training them and writing the textbooks. Um, so two years ago, um, my state was actually revamping the whole syllabus, so we had to do a rewrite of all of our textbooks. Um, so yeah, that finished last September. So I felt like that was a good stopping point where I could um, stop working there full time. And so I, now I'm teaching there casually. I do the equivalent of, I think, seven hours a week. So how do you juggle like that and the work with Lab Muffin? Because, like, I mean, just doing this show, I know how much time something like this can actually <laughs> take. So how do you manage to juggle all of that? So back when I was working full-time, um, there was a lot of discipline involved. So I, would, um, I had a one-hour commute there and back. So I would answer emails and write during the commute. Um, I had a laptop. Um, I found that using a laptop was much better than using a tablet or anything. So I invested in a very basic laptop that um, basically my main goal with the laptop was that it would go very quickly from take out of bags, open, start. Like it needed to switch off really quick and switch off really quick. Um, so there was a lot of discipline there because it's really easy to get on the phone, uh, get on the train and just go on Facebook or whatever. But I would <laughs> be like, no, it's working time. Um, I would, um, sometimes I would stay late after work because my workplace was a really good environment for getting stuff done. It was really quiet. Everything was very well laid out. So sometimes I would just stay at, stay back for a couple of hours to um, blog before I went home on the train with my laptop again. Um, but then I would also work endlessly on weekends. So basically on weekends, it would just be um, about 
18 hours of working. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's pretty unsustainable. There was a lot of coffee involved. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so especially in the last um, couple, in the last few um, couple years of my working full-time, it was getting, because I also started YouTube and that is the biggest time suck. Um, it's 20 to 40 hours per video um yeah which was why I was only doing one video um a month at that point because yeah it would just take up so much time um yeah so it's getting really unsustainable um but luckily I also was starting to get more sponsored opportunities um and I was starting to get a bit more ad revenue as well and so that's why I've been able to scale down that day job um so I think part of it is yeah working out a balance of time and money um (laughs) the perennial problem (laughs) with the reduced workload now are you finding that's easier to get a bit more of a balance and kind of mental balance (laughs) so I have days where I only do like one or two hours of work now which is really nice because yeah for a few years it was I would get one Sunday off every like four or five months um yeah (laughs) it was pretty bad um yeah yeah. Um, also, around that time, a lot of my friends moved overseas. So, so <laughs> it was actually also like, it wasn't like I disappeared off the face of the planet for my friends either. So I think because we all started going about doing our separate things, that also helped. Um, I mean, it sort of helped in one sense, but it was also pretty bad in the other sense because I did not have a life. Um, <laughs> it was pretty bad. Yeah. But you're you're still getting a lot of like personal value out of that, despite, you know, the balance issues <laughs> yeah yeah it, it was still it was still really rewarding it was just I don't know sometimes I was like maybe it's not entirely healthy to sit at a computer for 18 hours a day on both weekend days maybe I'm getting deep vein thrombosis <laughs> <laughs> oh dear yeah definitely feeling that <laughs> so in doing your work with lab muffin what is the most interesting thing that you've learned in any context, like technical or in terms of the science, just anything at all? Um, honestly, I think the most interesting thing is that people actually are interested in the science. Um, so, yeah, when I first started, I always thought it would be a niche audience of people who were like, you know, academic, um, people who were like massive nerds who wanted to know how the products worked. Um, but I think because it relates to such a pervasive part of um, female life, I guess, um, like all women at some point encounter beauty products, the vast, uh, some of them, of course, like just never look at it again, but a sizable proportion of women, most women, and an increasing proportion of men um, encounter personal care products. I mean, even if you are one of the grottiest people on earth, you still probably use soap every day. Um, (laughs) And at some point you probably wondered why does soap work so well? Um, Does liquid soap work better than um, solid soap? So I think, yeah, because it relates to, um, yeah, really relates to everyday life, people are curious. And I think people are just innately curious. We all, we all are sticky bees. Um, yeah. So I think, I think, um, it's interesting. Um, that's been really interesting. The fact that I've managed to grow, um, a decent sized audience well beyond what I ever thought I could. That's incredible. So as you know, you, you did this as part of your portfolio for developing science communication. But yeah, so you never had those lofty dreams of I'm going to become one of those bloggers. So I think my biggest fear is, I don't know, as an Asian, my my parents 
well, I'm also an immigrant. I moved here when I was three, um, but my parents have always emphasized the importance of having a steady job. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's been my biggest barrier. Um, so I do have a few friends who are who have gone into science communication. Um, and I think in Australia, it's just they, they don't pay very well, especially the entry level roles. Um, so and they they take a lot of time um, and you're required to travel a lot. And yeah, I think it's just been so ingrained into me that I need to have a steady job that I never thought I could take any of these internships. Um, yeah, so I think that was the main barrier, just the internships. And also I think one of the things is um, in Australia, we have so little media representation of Asians. So um, yeah, like Asians just aren't really presenters on TV apart from like Lee Lin Chin. Um, <laughs> And the so, treasure that yeah, she is. Never, yeah, she's she's wonderful. Um, I mean, it's starting to improve, but I think um, just yeah, I I was never I never really thought that going into media was a real possibility. Obviously, now with YouTube, there are tons of Asian creators on YouTube, um, and there are tons of Asian creators on Instagram, TikTok, um, and I think that's really democratized everything. But yeah, um, in mainstream media. Um, yeah, I just never felt like there would be a place for me, I guess. Wow. So is that somewhere that you actually want to head a little bit more into? Um, I think it would be good just be, like even if only because um, I think it would be nice to have more Asian representation there. Um, like there are a lot of Asians in Australia. Um, we, <laughs> we make up a very large proportion of the population. Um, and, yeah, just having like little girls realise that they this is a possibility for them. That would be fantastic. Good goals, good objectives. And yeah, definitely just seeing a lot more creators out there just doing their thing, trying stuff out. And that's, I guess, the only way that we can get more into this kind of space. Cool. So might start heading to some of the other questions I'd mentioned earlier. What kind of hobby or interest do you have that's the most unrelated to the work that you do? Um, I think it would be um, pole dancing. So I actually pole dance for exercise. I've been doing that for about 12 years now. Um, Your core must be amazing. (laughs) It it is pretty damn strong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's funny. It's so popular in Australia. Um, But um, I guess it's getting more popular overseas as well. Um, Yeah, it's pretty, it's really big in Perth as well, I think. Yeah, there have been quite a few places doing it. Um, like uh, we did it for Hen's Night for a mm. friend like years ago. But yeah, it would have been about that long ago now. And around then it was just, there were so many studios and so many places offering classes, you know, and, you know, they'd multitask. It's like, we'll also do silks and we will do pole dancing. You can do core <laughs> any way you want. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So what got you into pole dancing to start with? Um, it was actually one of the guys in my research group, his girlfriend did it. Um, and he showed me a video once, um, of her going upside down. I was like, oh, that's really cool. How long did it take her to do that? And he was like, oh, like two, like three months. And I was like, what? I can go upside down in three months. I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Oh, so you still like, do you do that regularly? Like from home or is it a class thing? Well, I mean, obviously now it's going to be a little bit difficult. Yeah, so it's um, usually scheduled classes of somewhere between like seven and 11 people. Um, And yeah, they've reopened now um, post lockdown. Um, So yeah, I do that three hours a week at the moment. Nice. That's a lot of pole dancing. (laughs) It's actually really good because 
Um, it was one of the things I think which stopped me from getting like severe health problems when I <laughs> every single day. So I had a pole dance class. Um, I was still doing three to four hours a week. I think I think during that time I even managed to do a competition. Oh, maybe nuts. two. That's crazy. Yeah. So that requires a lot of training. Um, so I guess yeah, if you try How really hard. <laughs> One of them I won and one of them I wasn't expecting to win and I didn't win, which was, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so, awesome. yeah, there was a lot of training involved. Um, yeah, and I think without that, I probably, like, I, I personally need a schedule. I need to be told, like, if you don't turn up <laughs> this place at this time, um, you're not getting a refund. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good motivator. Yeah. Yeah, like I've had those like 10 class pass things before for like CrossFit and I just like kept putting it off because it wasn't scheduled in. There was, yeah. Um, but yeah, having, having, the classes, having the classes yeah. is is really helpful. I, I've got a couple of friends who actually have poles at home um, and mm-hmm. yeah, just to keep it up between the classes. But I don't know, like it's a thing that interests me, but I don't know if I mean, I have traveled around and get on the treadmill. So it's like, well, would I be I able to just maintain it? Yeah. I guess to be boring. honest, like, I, I've been really bad at all exercise except pole. I've never managed to like. anything for more than two months except for pole, which has been 12 years. So that's, that's amazing. Like yeah. just, that's <laughs> awesome. Love it. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. And which childhood book holds the most, the strongest memories for you? I think... Honestly, it's again, it's so nerdy, but um, Chemical Chaos. Um, Chemical Chaos. It's one of those horrible science books. Do you remember Horrible Histories? Yes. Um, yeah. So Horrible Histories had a spin-off, which was Horrible Science, and there was oh, one which was nice. chemi- about chemistry. Um, and it it still is one of my favorite books. Every time um, one of my friends is a kid and they're like, "Gift, gift us books," I'm like, "That's going." That's, going. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So yeah, it's just like a really fun cartoony like journey into chemistry and I think one of the things that really got me into chemistry was this book um and that's because they drew out like a chemical structure and I was like so I understand atoms but what are the bonds what are the bonds made of (laughs) that's cool so yeah it just made you ask a lot more questions heading down Mm. that direction that's cool yeah I love the horrible histories book but I didn't realize actually it is science too it's very awesome (laughs) cool and what advice would you give someone who wants to get into chemistry or do what you do and what advice should they ignore? I feel like it's really hard to give advice because I feel like I got very lucky um, in terms of my timing, um, in terms of when I started blogging, when I started YouTubing um, and that sort of environment just doesn't really exist anymore because like the Google algorithms have changed. Um, but I think one of them would be look I think one of the things would be for content creation, um, make, if there's something that's missing, if there's something that you're looking for, um, that nobody's making, but you really want to know, um, maybe you should make that. Like if you, if you want it, there is probably a market for it. That's why I did this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And like any academic advice? I think... One of the things is um, try to talk to people who have left academia um, because a lot of the time when you're doing your PhD, you are only exposed to people who are still in academia, so the people who it works for. Um, and obviously they're going to – you have a very 
biased sample. Um, <laughs> you only end up talking mostly to people who either think academia is still right for them or academia has worked out really well for them. Um, and you don't get so much exposure to people who are now patent attorneys or consulting or doing any of that, any of that sort of thing. Um, so I think, yeah, seek out the people who have left academia and see if perhaps their career path is more suitable for you. That's great. Did you have anyone um, at the time whom you would consulted for this sort of thing or was it just something that you came to on your own? Honestly, I really, I didn't really. And I think it was just um, more like from talking to my peers and from talking to people who are trying to get postdocs, um, people later stage PhD students, um, there was this general disaffectedness <laughs> <laughs> that you tend to encounter. Um, I think part of it is just, PhD stress because a lot of the people who um a lot of my peers are still in academia um but yeah I think it would have been really helpful to talk to more people outside I did end up talking to people who went to consulting and stuff but um they were people who went into it like through a different route rather than post PhD um I was very lucky to have these connections because um I knew them from high school um but not everyone has that so yeah um Try to try to find out from like older PhD students if they know people who have graduated who are no longer doing <laughs> academia. Yeah, that's yeah, good advice. Being able to get a broader base of knowledge to make that choice. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Like, it's been very interesting talking about all the stuff that you do, your content creation, and yeah, just yeah, pole dancing. That's cool. I haven't talked to someone about that <laughs> in a while. But yeah. Um, so if people want to get in touch and see what you do, learn more about um, what you do, uh, where can they do that? So I'm on Instagram um, at Lab Muffin Beauty Science. Um, you can also check out my YouTube videos, which is also Lab Muffin Beauty Science. I've got very consistent writing. <laughs> my That's a website. good thing. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it, it's helpful. Yeah. Very helpful. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely fantastic. And yeah. Hope you have an amazing day and thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Hope you have an amazing day too. Yeah, will do. Beauty and skincare products are such a big part of our lives, irrespective of our gender. As a result, we're subject to the marketing of beauty science and technologies that quite frankly, most of us won't know from a bar of soap. People like Michelle, who communicate the science and explain what does and doesn't work and why in an accessible way, will hopefully create more informed consumers, which can only positively impact the industry. To learn more about Michelle and what we discuss on the show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steampowered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also reach out to Michelle at Lab Muffin Beauty Science, the links for which will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek-curious friends. You can also support Steampowered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steampowered Show the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.